Let's talk about the Book of Acts tonight. Uh, I want to give you a little title to it. It's Calm in the Storm. And we'll take that not only tonight, but also, Lord willing, next week. Um, by the way, and I don't want to embarrass her, but Shay, would you just raise your hand? Shay travels over, I think you're from Mississippi, is that right? And she travels to, she works for Regents, she travels to Atlanta, and every time she's coming over to travel for work, she stops at our Bible study. She was in Wednesday night Bible study, and she's here tonight, so it's good to have you, Shay. So perhaps this is a good time to review briefly the content and the setting and the date of Acts in Paul's life. And I just want to review it briefly for you. There's some things I've told you before, but I just want to just give you an up-to-date uh, version of what we've seen so far. So the book of Acts uh, is divided into two sections. Section 1, chapters 1 to 12, is concerned with the work of the Holy Spirit through Peter's life when he was ministering to the Jews. So Peter and Paul are the two main characters of the book of Acts. The book of Acts, Luke writes, and it's a continuation of his gospel. It tells you what happens right after the four gospels. And and so Peter is the main, is the main uh, character for the first 12, verse, first 12 chapters, and his message is to the Jew. If you read Paul later on in Romans, he'll say to the Jew first and then the Gentile. He's saying that because after Peter, Paul takes center stage. Section 2, chapters 13 to 28 is concerned with the work of the Holy Spirit through Paul's life when he was ministering to the Gentiles. We just talked to you about an article that talks about the spread of Christianity. Without these two, Christianity would not have spread. Jesus' word would have died. Jesus' word would have been a local belief and it would have died. Paul is single-handedly taking down the Gentile world. And now he's going to the heart of Rome. Now, I want you to see this in more graphic form so I can show you this one, which I've already showed you before, shown you before. So we see Peter and we see Stephen, we see Cornelius, Barnabas, Philip, Saul, Peter, and then we see from chapter 13, Paul. So the first command in Acts was to, the, to, to Jerusalem, Judea, and then Samaria, and then all the world. And that's exactly what's happening. That's amazing to me that this was put down before it ever happened. That's a prophecy. Jesus said this gospel is going to go into Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the world. You are right now studying about it going throughout the rest of the world and the fulfillment. You're living in it. You're living in the fulfillment of this gospel going throughout the entire world. Could you imagine? We are 8,000 miles away from Israel and the gospel has reached us. And the gospel has reached the entire globe. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's the most amazing miracle you can ever witness. And let me give you a little bit more of it and just give you a little timeline. So Paul's arrested in Jerusalem. You've seen that in Acts chapter 21. It's a chronology of the history. About 57 AD. He's in prison in Caesarea for two years, 57 and 59. He's going to travel to Rome. That's where we're at right now. Acts 27 to 2810. And about 60 AD. Paul reaches Rome and ministers under house arrest that's a very interesting thing what Paul does in Rome. Some of you will be joining us in Rome in September and you will see the prison, the actual prison, the Mamertine prison that Paul was chained in. And you will see the chains that are still there that held Paul. He writes his prison letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Luke writes, chapter, like, writes Acts that we're studying in 64 AD and Paul and Peter are killed for their faith in Rome and that's in 66 AD. So as I continue to give you a little bit of timeline and continue it, maybe this will help you a little bit better. So Paul goes on his third missionary journey 52 to 57 AD. We know that Paul is arrested in Jerusalem around 57 AD. AD. Paul and Peter martyred around 64 to 67. Some people believe 66. I showed you in the last one. Then the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, 70 AD. That first century was so full of prophecy, it wasn't even funny. Jesus said that, this, that the, the temple would be destroyed. There wouldn't be a stone left upon another. He talked about that generation that living then would see it. It happened in 70 AD. And then we see that Luke writes Acts around 60 to 80 AD is, is the common consensus. And so we see this happening. So it's starting in Jerusalem and it's ending in 
Rome. It's just like a, it's like a tidal wave that's going out. The gospel is absolutely amazing. It's like a drop, a pebble, pebble dropped in a pond, and it's starting to expand. Nothing else has ever done this. Nothing else has expanded across the world like this in such a, in such a time with martyrs being able to put it. Now, now, Islam tries to copy that, but Islam is not expanding a peaceful gospel. If you don't believe in Islam and you're in the Middle East, they kill you. Or they run you out. This is not the same way. This is a peaceful gospel. Not one shot is heard from these Christians. They're not going to war to do this. They're doing it in a peaceful, loving way. Love is the greatest conqueror. Ladies, listen. I'm going to give you a little bit of free counseling. If you have a, a husband that's a bear and he's not here tonight and he's angry, and he's, don't fight with your husband. He's going to win. He's in a bad man. will either fight or flight. Kill him with your love. Send that love out and watch what happens. Oh, I've done that, Pastor. Listen, maybe you haven't done it enough. Oh, you guys are deathly silent right now. <laughs> Golly. Man, either I'm hitting chords or you're just, it's going over. All right, you ready? So let me give you a little introduction. So Paul is, has his trip to Rome, okay? This is Paul's journey to Rome. It's Acts chapter 27, uh, verses 1 through 44. This is his trip. This is just him getting there. Now, you've got to ask yourself a couple questions before we start. Why would Luke spend so much time and so many words on Paul's voyage to Rome? He spends more words, and you'll hear me say this again, on Paul's voyage to Rome than he does about Paul when he's in Rome. So obviously, there's something in here. There's a lot in here that we've got to hear. So again, one introduction, then I'll start. So Paul survived the murderous plots of the Jews in Palestine. Will he escape them just to go and be killed in Rome? What will happen to him on the long, dangerous sea voyage? When he stands before Caesar, what will the emperor's judgment be? Maybe we won't learn answers to all of these questions. We'll get close. But we're going to read them, and we're going to learn what we can, and we're going to study it tonight. We're going to go deep tonight. Uh, I've done a whole lot of research, more than I normally do. I don't even know you're in for it tonight. But I've done more. So it starts with a sea voyage. I want you to see this. Paul's sea voyage to Rome is filled with high adventure. It's filled with danger. It's filled with disasters and the interventions of the Lord. Luke uses twice as many words, by the way, exactly twice as many, describing the voyage to Rome as he does explaining what happens when Paul gets there. He wants us to see his hero is still in another set of difficult circumstances. You can't read Acts without seeing Luke take away all of the pretense and show you the difficult problems that Paul's having. He does that so you and I can have some hope and some encouragement when we go through difficult problems. There are life applications. That's why he's doing it for us. And behind that, his beloved physician, this beloved physician wants to reveal the power of the Holy Spirit, the risen Christ, to give calmness in the, cal in the calamities of life. Calm in the storm. He wants to give calmness. In the How many of you have ever gone through a calamity in life? A trouble? How many maybe even going through one right now? He wants to give calmness in that. And whether it's on land or whether it's on sea, that's one of the reasons why he's doing it. In this section, we witness Paul, a passenger, become a commanding captain of a ship, all because the pilot of his life was the Lord of all creation. Portions of these passages read like a ship's log. The nautical detail is impeccable. Luke's knowledge of the sea, ship, sea ships, and sailing is vividly shown. But in each section of the account, there are powerful insights about living in the Spirit. So let's begin. You'll see I put a name above this one, Aristarchus. When it was decided, this is verse 1 and 2, 27, that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. He's a centurion. You already have read about centurions. He's over 100 men. And it says, And embarking in an Adrimitian ship, I'll show you where that is, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, 
a Macedonian, a Thessalonica. Now, you can read those verses and study your Bible and read through your Bible, and you will miss a tremendous amount of things that are happening there. Luke's given us some details, and again, if he's giving us these details, he wants us, God's Spirit wants us to know this. And so many people like to read through their Bible. They want to read Acts chapter, chapter 27. They read through it, and they miss every single... I can preach 10 messages just on these two verses. Somebody say, I can believe that. Yeah, well, I can. So in addition to giving us the details of this voyage uh, to Rome, Luke shows us Paul's friends uh, what a, who accompanying him to Rome. One of the amazing things about the character of Paul is his deep connection to people and his ability to endear close friends for life. We get a lot of people, a lot of scholars, and I read a lot of scholars who talk about Paul, and they point him as somebody that's very hard, very tough on women. That's not the Paul that, that uh, his friends knew. Paul, when he made a friend, made them for life, and those friends put their lives on the line for him. And he did for them too. And so we're going to talk a little bit about friends tonight, about loneliness tonight, about a bunch of things tonight. So let me show you a couple things. A sweet friendship refreshes the soul. You need good friends. Now let me just tell you something. I'm not talking about acquaintances. I have 6,000 people that are my friends on Facebook. Do you think they're all my friends on Facebook? Do you think if I'm stopped on the side of the road and I have a flat tire and they're going to a party, they're going to all stop for me? It's not going to happen. They're acquaintances. So good friends, if you have a couple of them in your hand, if you can count them on your hand, you have, some, you have, some great, you have a great life. Paul had more than a couple. Proverbs 27 says, A sweet friend refreshes the soul. We're going to talk about that for a moment tonight in a little bit. Friendship. A friend is someone you can be alone with and have nothing to do and not be able to think of anything to say and still be comfortable in the silence. That's a friend. A friend isn't somebody who expects something from you. A friend is someone who lets you be you. Are you with me tonight? So, good friends are hard to find, harder to leave, and impossible to forget. I can count on my hand, pretty much, and I've been a, I've been a pastor of thousands of people, maybe two hands. I can count on the, I can count that I have these friends all over the world that I've made friends with that I can call them at any given time. They'll drop everything they have. They'll talk to me. They will, just like we've, even if I haven't seen them in, in years. It's because good friends are, are something that are very, very impossible to forget. So, the lonely, friendless Pharisee, that's what Saul was, Paul was, had been changed into a man who could give and receive profound love uh, expressed in faithful friendship. He became a loyal friend to others and had a host of friends who cared deeply for him. When I came to Birmingham to pastor in Birmingham, I did not come to pastor them and us. It wasn't you and I was separate. We are family. And so I, I, and I endeared myself to you, and I, I opened myself up to you. I talk about Cheryl, I talk about my family. I have no problem talking about those things, because that's who I am. And the thing is, I care about the people that, that I pastored. They become real to me, not some congregants. I, I don't even like the word congregant, to be honest with you. It's almost a me and them type of thing. That's not what it is. We are in this together. Somebody say amen. It means if I sink, you sink. If I sail, you sail. Come on, somebody say amen. We're in it together. We should share one another's hurts, share one another's burdens, and one another's joy and victories. So he becomes a loyal friend to others, and he had a host of friends who cared deeply for him. Wherever he went, he developed deep bonds of love with people who became lifelong friends. Aristarchus is a great example. Who was this trusted friend of Paul? And why is Luke giving us his name here? Why is he telling us about Aristarchus? Aristarchus, there's some ancient pictures and frescoes on churches all over Rome. This is how they depict him. Of course, we don't know what he looks like. He was one of the converts during Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. 
And so Luke tells us, Aristarchus from Thessalonica, Paul led this man to the Lord. We don't know how old he was, but he led him to the Lord. He was with Paul during the dispute with the silversmiths at Ephesus. Remember? When they took Paul and all his companions into the theater and they wanted to kill every one of them, Aristarchus was there. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Thessalonica is in Macedonia, who were Paul's companions in travel. Companions in travel. Gaius, Aristarchus, they're going along with him. They're in Ephesus. Ephesus is nowhere, is not, is not in, in Thessalonica, so they're traveling with him. Aristarchus is traveling with him. We see this. So, so Peter, the Berean son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, and Tychus, and Trophimus. That's when they went to Jerusalem. You just read about that. And Paul was in Jerusalem, they, they tried to bring him in front of the mob. He had people that went with him. They followed him. They went with him. He went with Paul to Jerusalem and stayed with him there for two and a half years of turbulence. He went to Caesarea, Aristarchus. We've been reading all about Paul, but trust me, in the wings, wherever I read about Paul, Aristarchus is there looking at it, because he's there following him. He's with him. He's a companion in travel. So he's in Caesarea for two and a half years. He has given up his life to be a companion of Paul to help spread the gospel. These are the ones that are in the background. These are the ones who are doing it. There are people in the background in any ministry. People here in the background, they're doing volunteer work. They're helping this get along, helping it go. These are Paul's workers. These are Paul's uh, trusted friends. They're with him. So they, these loyal Thessalonian, Thessalonians were permitted and now to travel with Paul. And now to travel with him in Rome. Luke's telling you that he's on a a boat with Paul. He's going to Rome. He knows that Paul might be sentenced to death. What happens to Paul on this voyage is going to happen to Aristarchus. And so he's been with Paul since Paul's second missionary journey. Let me show it to you. He's been with Paul since right over here. He's been with Paul since he's Thessalonica. He's been with him from there. And so he, he goes through the second missionary journey, goes back, goes to the third missionary journey, goes back to, to Jerusalem, and now has boarded a ship to go back to Rome or go to Rome with Paul. And so we know that. He's been with Paul since Paul's second missionary journey in A.D. 50. It's now A.D. 60 around. So he's been with him the last 10 years of his life. Luke was also with Paul. Look at verse 2, what it says. It says, we boarded a ship. That's Luke from Andrometium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So Luke is there too. So now you know that Paul's there. Now you know that Luke's there. Now you know that Aristarchus is there. This isn't just Paul alone on a ship. It's not just Paul alone in Jerusalem. It's not just Paul alone on the missionary journeys. We see now that we have, we have Luke that's there with him. So he was with Paul. Right, by the way, he, uh, Luke was with, uh, with Paul, and they, the beloved physician was with Paul also since his second missionary journey. When he got saved in Troas. Let me show you this. Here's Troas. And so Paul's picking up a whole lot of Macedonians. Troas is right over here. That's where Luke gets saved, the physician. He actually is saved before Aristarchus is. And Paul's picking up these men who are changing their entire life. These are Gentiles. These are Gentiles that have found the truth in Jesus Christ and they are abandoning everything they have and they're joining with Paul. Kind of reminds you of the disciples of Jesus, does it not? But these are Gentiles. And so we see that he's picking them up. We, we watch him take, take them through this. So the beloved physician was there since his second ministry journey. And he too will be with Paul right up to the day of Paul's death. And although not mentioned in chapter 27, I'm sure Gaius is there also. Gaius is another traveling companion. Look what this says. As I can read this for you. 
Uh, from Wikipedia, Gaius is the Greek spelling for the male Roman name Caius. He's a, he's a Gentile, a figure in the New Testament of the Bible. A Christian, Gaius is mentioned in Macedonia as a traveling companion of Paul, along with Aristarchus. One chapter later, Gaius, who has residence in Derby, is named as one of the Paul's seven traveling companions who waited for Metress. So now we see that Paul had seven traveling companions. These are seven men that would go with him wherever he, he would go. I know who they are, although they're not mentioned here. It's Luke, it's Aristarchus, it's Gaius. We know that it's Barnabas. Timothy, John Mark, and Silas. These are the ones that traveled with him. Some of them peeled off and did their own thing a little later on, but these men stayed with, Jesus, with uh, Paul. Gaius is mentioned as having residence in Corinth, as being one of the only few people there, other being Crispus in the house of the Stephanus, who were baptized by Paul. So Gaius not only was led to Christ by Paul, he also, Paul also baptized him. He founded the church in that city. Gaius is referred to in the final greeting portion of the epistle, epistle to the Romans as Paul's host, and is also host of the whole church in whatever city Paul is writing from at the time. In all likelihood, this was Corinth. Lastly, Gaius of Ephesus, to whom the third epistle of John is addressed. So Gaia, John addressed his third epistle to Gaius. And so these men were faithful men. They're behind the scenes. We don't see them all, but I want you to see that they're faithful friends. But Paul also made friends among the most unlikely of candidates. Reading between the lines, we see that he boarded a ship for Rome as no ordinary passenger. He wasn't just an ordinary prisoner. Uh, here's the kind of ship he boarded over 2,000 years ago. It's this ship. It's a Roman galley, a cargo ship. And we know that he's boarding the ship. They were filled with amphora. That's over this side. We've actually found some of those. They have wine. It's still very powerful for 2,000 years old. These ships are found in the Mediterranean all the time. They're very, they're like our airplanes. They, they traveled everywhere in the, in, the, in the Mediterranean. And so let me show you that what it would look like in its glory. It would be just something like that. So that's the first ship he travels on. And that's one from 2,000 years ago that was found. That was found in the Mediterranean. It's been, it's been brought up. That's the type of ship that Paul immediately gets on. So they board the ship with him, and he has a, his centurion there. There's some other people that are there. They tell us that uh, this is a, exactly a ship. And Paul was sailing. Uh, this is what it looked like. Notice the single mast on it uh, in the center. We will read about that later on another ship. But he's no regular prisoner. By the way, let me go back to this. This ship has come from way up here. It's come from way up here. And it's traveled to Caesarea, because Caesarea is a port, and Paul gets on it at Caesarea. So, uh, so he's no regular prisoner. Uh, he's somebody very, very different. And we see these on this ship. Now, I want you to just follow me for a little bit as I go on here. So he has, he, we know that something's going on here because he's no regular prisoner, because the orders from Festus must have contained instructions for preferential treatment. Because Luke uses a term that points us to that fact in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. It says, And when it was determined that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus Bion. Other, the Greek word is heteros. It means a different type. He's a different type of prisoner. He's not being beaten and put in chains and put in a hold with all the cargo. He's probably on board and on top of the ship with the rest of the people. He's given preferential treatment. Obviously, Festus is impressed by him. Obviously, Festus is doing something. He was perhaps a secret admirer of Paul's courage. Whatever the case, Julius the centurion is in charge of delivering this apostle to Rome, treats him with respect, and gave him privileges not given to the other prisoners, as we will see. So he will have to stay with him all the way to Rome. If Julius loses Paul, if Paul dies, if Julius, if he escapes, Julius will be put to death. Unless he can say that the death was natural or something like that. But he is in charge with the life of Paul. He's a Roman citizen until he gets to Rome. How many are still with me tonight? 
So that's a lot for just the first two verses, don't you think? <laughs> I love the word. You can dive so deep and find the specifics behind the storyline. So in Acts chapter 27, verse 3, it goes on. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, here's how you know he has preferential treatment, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. This is a prisoner. So Julius, the centurion, allows him to get off the ship and go into Tyre to his friends to provide for his needs. Now, you can read your Bible all day long, but you've got to read it looking at all the details because you miss a whole bunch if you miss the details. The ship was from here, as I showed you before. Let me show you where it was. Get my pointer out. The ship was from here. Andrometium. So obviously the ship had made a round and had taken something to Caesarea. Paul gets on Caesarea. The centurion and his troops get on. We know that, uh, that uh, Gaius probably gets on. And we know Aristarchus gets on. Luke's gets on. And we know they have goods. They're taking goods and they're bringing them back. They're going to Italy. They're taking goods from here. Now what would goods would they take? Let me give you a little bit more history and fill it in. We know that there's two spots right over here that Rome needs. They need the plains of Israel right here right above Israel, and they need the plains of Egypt. These were both great granaries. They fed the Roman army, and they fed the Roman people. If you were a Roman citizen living in Rome at this time, I love filling in these details, Rome had a million people living in it. That's a lot for the first century. And let me tell you the programs in Rome. If you were a Roman citizen living in Rome, you didn't worry about buying bread or grain. The Roman government supplied your daily bread and your daily grain. So every day you got grain. Now where did Rome get it from? The grain fields of Israel and beyond and Jordan and the huge grain fields of Egypt as you will see in a moment and this will make so much sense to you and pull it all together. So the ship was from Andrometium but obviously it had sailed to Caesarea where Paul was being held. Now on its return it, the first stop is at Sidon. Sidon is right here and I read it to you. Sidon is right here. You'll, you'll know it in scripture as Tyre and Sidon. It's in what now is Lebanon. That's the first stop. So it goes up the coast a little bit, and it stops. Now, notice the words Luke used in verse 3. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty. He was free to go to his friends and receive care. So that tells us a couple things here. If Julius is responsible for Paul's escape, what does it tell you that Julius, how, what do you think about Paul? He trusts him. He believes him. He thinks he's a man of his word. And so he allows him freedom. Julius's life is at stake, and he allows him freedom. Maybe, just maybe, I don't know for sure because we don't have any proof, Julius actually gave his heart to the Lord. We don't know. If he did, we'll have a little controversy with that a little bit later on. So, it's a gem. I mean, you could preach on that all day long. Paul had never been to Sidon, by the way, and Julius is letting him go to his friends in Sidon. He'd never been to Sidon, and yet he has friends there. He probably met them during his visit nearby, to nearby Tyre on his way back to Jerusalem two and a half years earlier. The Bible says this. When we had parties, way back when, from then it had set sail, we ran straight course to Kos. This is one of his missionary journeys. To Rhodes, Patera, and having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we were aboard and sent sail when we came to the site of Cyprus. Leaving on the left, we sailed to Syria, landed in Tyre. Tyre is very close to, Tyre is very close to Sidon. So obviously when they landed in Tyre in this missionary journey, People from, from Sidon heard about Paul and they came to visit him and he made friends with them and probably converts. How many are getting this tonight? I'm weaving the entire picture to you for tonight. But listen, Luke's telling us these things for a reason. He wants us to pull these things out. He doesn't just want you to run past it. He wants you to see some life applications here. So uh, Paul went to there to receive care. Don't forget what he's saying there. Some, some scholars think that it was medical care. I don't believe that because it's doubtful since the physician Luke was by his side constantly. Have you ever sought out the solace of friends 
when you needed uplifting? Have you ever sought out friends to help you? Luke has been telling us about these names all down the line, telling us how people are treating Paul. And then he says that Paul goes to his, his, his friends, the people he knows, so that they can give him care. He's leading you somewhere. He's letting you know the importance of friends. How many of you see it? Paul was now leaning on those Christians who had leaned on him. He had done service to th for them, and now he's expecting something. He needs them. He's, he's in a hard spot, and he needs comfort. Real friendship is born in that love that he has for them. That's real Christianity, real friendship. The book of Romans, in the book of Romans, Paul would talk about our duty to one another. Do a word search when you go home one day. Just look at the word one another in Romans. It's all over the place. He talks about that we're to lift up one another, that we're to care for one another, that we're to encourage one another, that we're to love one another. Maybe he thought of the Christians at, at Tyre when he wrote these things. Paul needed the uplifting boost of fellowship. He's on his way, he thinks, to his death. At, C at, Caesar's pal at Caesar's Rome. We all need that. How many of you need uplifting at times? How many get down at times? Several of you don't, and I'm not sure why, but it's okay. <laughs> Paul forged deep friendships. How? Well, same way we can. He allowed people to love him and meet his needs. Now, let me repeat that. He allowed people to love him and meet his needs. Lonely Christians are those who have confused strength with independence. Listen. Lonely Christians are those who have confused strength with independence. Are you ready for another Mark Corellian quote? Okay, for those of you who are, here it is. Doing things for others will give you friends. Letting them do something for you as well deepens friendships that will last for a lifetime. Friendship is reciprocal. If you know people and all they do is take from you, that's, they're not your friends. If you know your people and all they do is sponge or all they do are, are, emotional, are emotional windpipes when they're around you constantly and don't care about anything you, you say, they're not your friends. They may be your acquaintances, but they're not your friends. Friends are mutual. It's a mutual exchange back and forth. And so obviously, Paul has given these people that are so close, he's given them something. What did he give them? He gave them salvation. He gave them the truth. He set them free. And now they're willing to give him things and they're bonding in this great friendship. Deep friendship always goes two ways. Surface friendships are usually just one way. Look what Jesus said in John 15. He actually calls us friends. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Did you know that Jesus allowed people to give things, for people to give things to him? He had a bag. That bag had money in it. He gave it to the thief, but it had money in it. Judas had the bag. And he allowed people to give to his ministry because he was giving something to them. He it was a great exchange. That's friends. When you hear somebody saying, oh, so-and-so is fr a friend of the ministry, it means they're giving to the ministry. They're doing something because there's an equal exchange that's there. How many of you get this? So Paul was on his way to Rome, but he was not alone, nor was he lonely. Jesus and his friends were with him. So let's talk about loneliness for a minute today. Anyone here ever feel lonely? You can feel lonely in a crowd. Here's how the secular world thinks you can cure loneliness. This is directly from a, a popular psychiatrist book on steps to cure loneliness. So if you're lonely tonight, don't listen to this. Here it is. Watch a movie. That'll make you feel really unlonely. Uh, binge watch a TV show. What? This is a popular psychiatrist book. Write a journal or journal. Practice yoga. I don't know. Last time I saw yoga was not a team sport. I don't know. Staying. Paint your nails. 
I don't think so. Get in touch with a friend. That may be the only one that's there. Write a letter. Make something. Have a photo shoot. Take yourself out on a date. That's pretty lonely. <laughs> there you are at your table eating your steak saying, I wonder why I'm here. Um, snuggle an animal. Uh, this is one. This is go for a walk. Make a playlist. Make a collage. Organize or clean. That'll make you feel better. Make a self-love jar. I don't even know what a self-love jar is. I'm afraid to ask. Have a dance party of one. Oh, I feel so much better now. That's pure baloney, is what that is. C.S. Lewis said this. Look for yourself and you will find loneliness and despair. But look for Christ and you will find him and everything else. I love that statement. The best cure for loneliness is developing an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You will never be lonely if you have a, a, a development a relationship with Christ. You may feel it, but if you go back to Christ and you go back and seek Him out, that loneliness will go. God is with you because God is with you every step of the way in life. No matter how dark, how lonely, how painful those steps may be, you will never walk alone. You have to just concentrate on that when you are lonely. Now listen, so I'm going to read something to you here. And as I move on, Luke traces the first stops and the first steps of the journey. So I'm going to read it to you, and I'm going to give you the chart so you can follow along with me. Uh, it would be an easier way to do that. So he's starting from here in Caesarea. They've already gone to Sidon. Now as I read it, trace it through there as you're going. So when we, verse 4, when we have put to sea from there, that's from, that's from uh, Sidon, when we put to sea from there, we sheltered under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. He's telling us a lot of things. Cyprus right there is in the, in the Mediterranean Sea, but basically it's sheltered from the winds. So right off the bat, you're hearing that there's some bad winds coming in, and there are. Uh, when you hear about the, the storm that hit the, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus, Jesus calmed that storm, they were winds, Eurocladens, that came in through here. Here's the Sea of Galilee, and they came right off the Mediterranean. They can, they can put 10-foot to 20-foot tidal waves in the Sea of Galilee, an inland sea. And so the wind is right there. They're, they're facing the wind. Now, verse 5, And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Myra. This is, this is the other names he mentioned right down here. They came to Myra. So they sailed, they hit wind, and they came to Myra. And it's verse 6. And there the centurion found, a, found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy and put us on board. They changed ships. So right over here, they get off the, they get off the Roman ship, and they get a ship from Egypt. And, it's, and they, they're, they're on that. They change ships because probably this ship, which came from up here, is returning there. And so this one is coming from Egypt, goes to Myra and is going to go to Rome. So they change ships. So Paul changes ships. How many are learning something tonight? Amen. So, uh, and when we had sailed slowly many days, there's only one reason you sail slowly many days. Anybody know why? You're being resisted by the wind. Okay? And arrived with difficulty off Snidus. The wind was not, was not permitting us to proceed. We sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. So Salmon is here. They were producing, they were going this way, Snidus. They were probably trying to go this way. And I've been here. I've been on the AG and see here. It's beautiful. They were probably, this is the more direct way to Rome. But they couldn't because the wind was, was bearing down. It's a north wind that was coming down this way and pushing them south. So they looked for cover. Man, how many of you love reading the word? Amen. They looked for cover. So what they did is they had cover here. The mountains of Crete stopped the wind. And so they stopped at Fair Havens. Why was it named Fair Havens? That was the name of it. Because it was fair just for a time like this. Because this was the place ships went 
to, to get away from that Eurocliden, that north wind that blows down this way. So now you see what Paul's facing. Luke wants to put you on board, by the way. He wants you on this ship. That's one of the reasons why he's taking all of his time. And it's one of the reasons why I'm not going to pass over it. I want you on the ship. Tonight, we're going to put you on that ship. We're going to let you see what they see. We're going to let you feel what they feel so that you can understand the words that are being said. And so Luke is doing it. I'll tell you that again. So here they are right there. So then we go to verse 8. And passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lacia. Lacia is not on here. It's right over here. So they come to the Fair Havens, and that's where we're going to stop for a second, okay? I know from studying history of verses in Ale of Alexandria, Egypt, that, and we're going to go some more Bible study here so you understand what's going on, that, again, one million people lived in Rome. The government fed them every... Can you imagine the government... By the way, that's equivalent to Birmingham. Can you imagine Birmingham City Council giving every single one of us a measure of grain so we can eat bread all day long? It's a massive undertaking. So they had to get it from Egypt, and that's where they got it from, or, or Israel. So Paul was transferred to, a, transferred to an Egyptian grain vessel. Now watch, we're reading between the lines. Egypt was the grain capital of the world, and the Roman Empire needed tons and tons of grain every day. So these ships ran like our airplanes run over the United States. At any given time, you look up in the sky, I don't know whether there's 6,000, 10,000 airplanes over the United States. I think I remember the statistics. That's the same way with these ships. They're going back and forth from, from Egypt. It's a massive transfer of grains and funds and money. So Paul's on this grain ship that has to get to Rome. These are grain exchanges. It's like a trucker. They have to get there. This is not something that they can take their time on. Anytime they take their time, uh, they're going to lose money. And you're going to see that. You're going to see the importance of that in a moment. So... They're going back and forth daily. Uh, obviously, it doesn't take a day to go to Rome. It takes a long time to go, come, sometimes months. But there's so many going and coming that everyone are arriving, they're arriving every day. So Luke gives us more details. And that's our study for tonight. Good night. No, this is the ship he's on. That's a granary. That's an Egyptian granary. It's huge. And look at the, look at the single mast. This is one they rebuild from the same, the same dimensions. So that's the kind of ship, the exact kind of ship Paul's on. He's changed from a small little cargo ship that's going up to the Adriatic, uh, the Aegean, and he's changed this large one coming out of Egypt, and he's on that ship. Now, that's going to set a little bit of the stage. So Luke gives us the details. Acts chapter 27, verse 9 to 26. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. Ah, Luke's painting a picture for you. So Paul warned them, Man, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. Paul says, listen, he's on board, he's on top, he's not a prisoner underneath, he's talking to the captain, he's talking, which you'll see, the owner of this ship is actually on the ship too. He wants to get it there. It's probably his last shipment of the year for that ship because of the inclement weather. And it's going to be disastrous for our lives. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. So the owner's there. Uh, since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northeast. So they want to go further up and go around and get by the harbor and winter there because they know it's that bad. Okay, so what if I told you that I know, that I know, what time is it? My watch stopped at 7. Okay, what if I told you that I know... <laughs> Just give me a couple more minutes. Can you do that? Yeah. All right. What if I told you that I know the exact day of the year and the exact year 
that Paul actually said these things to the men and centurions. What if I told you I knew the exact... Uh, let me just give it to you this way. It was exactly 1,958 years ago, 7 months, and 12 days ago. From here. It was 1,958 years, 7 months, and 12 days ago that Paul said the words I just read. How many believe me? How many are doubting? How many don't want to say? <laughs> There's a profound theological truth beneath the account and the decision to proceed in spite of the time of the year and the treacherous sailing conditions. Paul did not allow the urgency he felt about getting to Rome, now listen, to cause him to push the captain of the ship and the centurion to proceed. In fact, he warned against it. He urged that they winter at Fair Havens on Crete before moving on. A straight course across the Aegean was impossible. Told you, that's what they wanted at the time of year. Luke tells us that the Feast of Atonement, that's the fast, the Feast of Atonement was over indicating that it was sometime early in October in AD 59. As a matter of fact, the feast was held on October 5th of eight, in October 5th of, eight, of 59 AD. That's the exact day he said this. So when you read, you can see a lot of things. In those days, people sail, seldom sailed after September. And by November, it was considered foolhardy. Between fall and early spring, the waters were dangerous, not only because of the winds and the turbulent sea, but because the cloudy weather made navigation difficult without the sun by day and the stars by night. Paul predicted that a voyage at this time would end with disaster in the loss of ship and many lives. Oh, come on. Luke's filling in all the details for us. He's giving us one detail after another after another. So you can be on that ship with Paul. He wants you standing on board for something that's going to happen. He wants you to feel what they're feeling. He wants you to experience what they're experiencing. He wants you to hope when they hope. He wants you to fear when they fear. He is setting up a drama for you. Luke is the great drama writer. He's telling you the truth, but he's setting up a drama. How many are getting it tonight? So, he's leading us somewhere by the Holy Spirit's direction. There's a huge life application coming up for all of us, which I'll tell you next week. I want to tell you another one tonight. The centurion did not take his advice. I'm going quickly. The helmsman and the owner of the ship wanted to strike out for another harbor on Crete to winter there. It was a disastrous decision, as we shall see. The owner wants to get closer. He's probably going to try to get another ship that he can commandeer pay and put his cargo on that would be foolhardy enough to go to Rome. He's desperate for his money. This is probably his income for, for this year. It's probably something he needs, to, he needs to do. So let's not miss what's happening here. The point, also a huge point, is that, are you ready for it? Paul did not make a rash decision on the base of his expectation of the Lord's protection. Paul did not say, oh, the Lord's going to protect me, let's just go ahead and do it. I know lots of Christians that do that. I know lots of Christians that make rash decisions and they claim the Lord's going to take care of them. Paul didn't do that. Here's one of the lessons of tonight. So many of our difficulties occur when we make foolhardy decisions and then expect the Lord to get us out of the self-made decisions. And also, often, we find ourselves in difficulties because of the wrong choices of others have made in our lives. You're going to see that happen here. We may ask, if the Lord was so anxious to get Paul to Rome, why all the disasters during the sea voyage? Why didn't he calm the seas and change the direction of the wind? Instead, he guided Paul to warn the centurion and the owner of the ship not to proceed. The Lord gives us intelligence, and he gives us experience, as well as specific guidance. You cannot excuse one without the other. The problems Paul and the others had at sea were because the centurion denied all three of those. As we'll see, Paul was right in not wanting to leave Fair Havens. And as we shall also observe, the Lord in, in intervened to help them in spite of their careless choice. The Lord obviously had planned for the ship to stay where it was until spring. If it had, the rest of Acts 27 would not have been written. And Luke's account only would have been a smooth sailing from, from Crete to Italy. So many of our problems are brought on by foolish 
and unguided decisions. And when trouble results, we blame God. How many are with me? So let me ask you tonight, who here, and this is not because you're blaming God, who here has some decisions to make in life and you need help in how to make those decisions? Raise your hands. Oh, I knew this was going to happen. I counseled somebody right before I came here tonight, and I didn't know the lady. I counseled her in my office. Sure, I was there. And uh, one of the things was she was having trouble making decisions. I said, man, I wish she would come to the study tonight. She didn't plan on it, but it's all about decision making. Tonight, based on our account of this bad decision made by others in Paul's life, I want to close by teaching you how to make godly decisions in life. First of all, if you didn't raise your hand, you needed to. We all make decisions sometimes that are bad. And we all face decisions we have to make every single day. So how to make godly decisions. I'm going to go quickly here because I know we're running out of time. It's going to be tomorrow soon. We each make multiple decisions every day. Every one of us do. There are consequences for every single decision you make. There's a consequence. You may not know this, but if you turn a certain way on the highway, there's a consequence. Uh, there may, you may not even understand it. Maybe you missed a, an accident. Maybe God did something. You have no idea about your decisions, but you make decisions every single day. We either decide to follow God or we decide not to. Many times we decide to follow ourselves or popular opinion. Decisions today are often affected by decisions we've made in the past. The decision you make today may be affected by the decision you made in the past. When I counsel people, many times their decisions are because of past hurts that they made. And I've got to get them away from their past hurts so they can make right decisions without thinking about their past. Are you still with me tonight? So what should, let, let, let's, let's just, uh, last night I did my Proverbs study and I was telling him about making decisions and I showed them something which was kind of interesting. But before I do that, let me show you. Making wise decisions. There's a choice you have to make in everything you do and you must always keep in mind the choice you make makes you. You are a product of your decisions. I made a decision to listen to a 17-year-old girl tell me that I was wrong sp spiritually and I was following a wrong way. She stood not in that blend of, a, blend of a way and that I needed Jesus Christ. I could have said to her, get out of here. I belong to the one true religion. That's what I was, that's what I was brought, up, brought up with. And that's just false. I didn't. I made a decision. It changed my entire life. There's other little decisions you make to make change your entire I made a decision to come to Birmingham. You wouldn't even know who I was if I didn't make that decision. Cheryl was at home. I came here for a week to work in a church and she called me up and she said, well, what do you think? I had a great church in Pennsylvania. It was growing. We had money given to us for land. We had land given to us. We were building a church. It was, it was, it was, I, all my friends were there. Uh, and I said, I said, the first night I came back from, from uh, service, the first Sunday I came back, I said, I don't feel a thing here. So I told her, I said, I feel nothing. And she said, well, the pastor said, well, why don't you work through the week? You want to take this church? We want you to come down, work through the week. We want to, we want to offer the church to you. I worked through the week. I loved the people. They were great people, but I didn't feel pull. Uh, that Sunday morning, I went and I, and I preached that Sunday morning. It was a great service, but I didn't feel anything. I called Cheryl back up. She was home with our kids. I called her back up. She said, well, well what are we doing? You know, are we moving? I said, I don't feel anything, Cheryl. And I, I could hear Cheryl going, ah. Her family was there. It was, it was a move very far away. That night I went and preached, I preached that night and gave an altar call and people came down and they start weeping and my heart melted to them. just was instant. It helped, melted to them. And I knew right then and there, I get chills thinking about it, I need to come here. God's got something here. And I called her up and I said, Cheryl. And I was all excited. I said, we're moving to Birmingham. And she went, let's do it. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That was a decision to make. Every single, those are the major decisions, but every day you make decisions. Every single day. Now, just follow me. Here's how it happens, and we need to understand. The decision you make is not based on somebody that you think is spiritual telling you information. 
That's only one part of it. That may be a counseling. That's good. But that's not how you're, you're going to have to live with your decision. Not somebody who counsels you. Okay. So who do you do? You have tradition. I could have stayed in my traditional church. Tradition helps you make decisions all the time without you even thinking. You can have experience. Sometimes your experience is the best teacher. And reason. Don't park your brain at the door when you go to church. Let me tell you what you're, you're headed for. You're headed for, you're headed for somebody that could be easily manipulated in a cult. You don't want to park your brain. You want to think. But the big thing is scripture. They all have to tie together with what God says. Scripture. This is powerful, solid teaching for you tonight. Whether it's a president, you can, and I was taking, teaching about Proverbs last night. Remember, Andy? And I was talking about whether it's, a pro, whether it's a president or who else saw God's sovereignty, biblical integrity, and human creativity. That should lead presidents, pastors, rulers, kings, and husbands. The reason why President Trump is doing so well is because he's thinking about God's sovereignty and his biblical integrity. And he's pretty creative by moving that, that, that embassy that nobody else would do. But he has right. biblical backers telling him what he needs to do. So this is what it's talking about. So what then is biblical decision? A biblical, a godly decision considers the nature and the character of God, the values and the wise counsel of others. There it comes in. It does not regard disregard human ordinances nor violates conscience, but uh, uh, conscientiously and prayerfully submits to the loving control and unsearchable wisdom of the Holy Spirit in order to glorify God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a checklist for us making a godly decision. It pays for us to do that. And by the way, a couple quotes here. Our lives are a sum total of the choices we have made. That's who you are. You are a sum total of the choices you made. That's who jo Moses was. That's who Joshua was. Look at his life. Look at the choices he made. Choices to follow God. Choices to go to, to Pharaoh. Not to go to Pharaoh. It choices to do whatever he wanted to do. Joshua, the same way. Be willing to make decisions. You have to make them. Don't sit on the fence. If you have a decision to make, make it. The worst thing you can do is not make your decision. You have to make it. Uh, this, that's the most important quality in a good leader. Don't fall victim to what I call ready, aim, aim, aim syndrome. You must be willing to fire. So the whole idea why President Trump is going to go down as a great president is because he doesn't aim, 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 aim. He makes a decision. And it doesn't matter. He makes that decision. He stands by the decision. That's a leader, by the way. We've had enough presidents that couldn't lead anybody, anywhere, because they wouldn't make a decision. Now, as I close tonight, how many times did I say that? Who cares? All right, here you go. Keeping God first in decision-making. Seek godly counsel. Yes, pray boldly. Confirm it with your scripture. You have to do that. And if I can give you something that would really help you tonight would be this. It's, and I've taught you this about before. Five scriptures for making decisions. Tune out distractions. Distractions are going to hurt you every time you make a decision. And by the way, some of those distractions are some of your friends that mean well. Some of those distractions are some of the people's popular opinion. Seek godly advice. Yes, seek counseling. Not only counseling. No, it's not there by itself. You seek it with other things. Narrow down your choices. Get a paper. What are your choices? Narrow them down. Think about them. Uh, do something. You have to do something. Right or wrong, you have to do something. And then give thanks for the answer. Obviously, if you're searching God, you're going to be doing the right thing. So, as I wind down, notice I didn't say close. Making decisions is simple. Get the facts. Seek God's guidance. Form a judgment. Act on it. And stop worrying. Because all along, the whole thing, you, when you don't make a decision, what you spend your time doing is worrying. So stop worrying. You with me tonight? All right. Lastly, here it is. Don't just make good decisions. Make God's decisions. It's important. So tonight, would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Lord, I thank you and I praise you tonight, Lord God. I thank you for 
your instruction. Lord, you're leading us through Luke's writing and the Holy Spirit. You're leading us somewhere. And even tonight, we only touched the surface. We'll be back here, Lord willing, next Thursday and talk about the rest of the things that happened, Lord, and how it applies to us. But tonight, Lord God, I know so many have raised their hands for decision-making, Lord God, and I pray they make the right decision. And for those that are listening at home, or those listening through YouTube, all around the world, Lord God, or Facebook, I pray if their decision is to follow you, they, mean that they need to stop vacillating and do it right now. May they kneel wherever they are watching this. And may they ask you into their heart, Lord God, as them be their Savior and Lord. Let them stop vacillating, God. Now is the day of salvation. Let them have action today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me tonight for a moment? Just one moment. So tonight, here's the deal. One last final prayer. If you raise your hand, if you, may, if you need to make a decision, raise your hand high. Raise it up. You need to make a decision. I'm going to ask people that are around you just to go over to you and put their hands on you just for a moment. Just lay your hands on them on your back. I want to pray one for another tonight. Remember we said one another? That's what Paul wrote about. One another. So tonight, let's pray for each other. Father, thank you. Come on, raise your voice and pray for that person. Thank you, Lord God. I pray for everyone that is standing here, Lord God. We make decisions every day. Some are very, very crucial in the timing, Lord God. I pray right now that you guide and guard, Lord God. Take this, let them take this information, Lord God, this teaching. Apply it to their hearts, Lord God. Let Scripture speak to them, Lord, that they would make godly decisions. Lord, we look for the testimonies that will come from the godly decisions. Bless us tonight, Lord God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Let's thank the Lord tonight. God bless you.